Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. interesting is the topic tonight uh, is about community um, and specifically about how community can make change and, and so it was funny because as everyone was introducing themselves and talking and talking about how they want to connect with their you know kind of find a connection in the Jewish community or find an intimate setting to connect with other Jews I was like oh my gosh this is like we're living what I'm about to speak about so that's really exciting and maybe we can even I don't know, it'd be cool to kind of think afterwards about how, uh, how this applies to what's happening right here, right now, to AJ's projects, to all this stuff. Because I think, you know, one of the things I'm going to be talking about tonight is not just about, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about community. We don't hear as much about how community itself can be a, um, a tool for change. Um, we, we hear about it in, in very oblique terms, but I think it's important that we kind of uh, inspect that, especially as Jews, because Jews, by definition, are a community whose job it is to create change. So in different ways and in different respects, but ultimately, it's kind of what we were charged with. Uh, no matter what level of, of belief you have in terms of Judaism, it's kind of core to who we are. Um, so I'm going to bring up some of my own experiences, just to give you a little bit of an intro. I'm going to give you some of my own experiences first, and then I'm going to kind of uh, dissect those and then dissect a little bit more about, about the, the dynamics of community and change. Uh, cool? And Good. awesome. And feel free, if you guys have any questions the whole time, you can completely interrupt me at any moment. I won't be offended. I'll just be really upset. Just joking. Um, so, <clears throat> I, uh, I have, a f I want to give you guys three examples of times in my life where I joined a community and specifically communities that changed my life and then um, I think at least two of them that resulted in me feeling empowered to change the world. Um, the first one was when I chose to become Orthodox. Um, now I want to tell you a little bit about the process by which that happened. It actually happened, it started in Arizona because um, I was feeling very, I actually, when I got to college, I'd always been a spiritual person but college started to really activate this spiritual side of me. And I remember I was learning, uh, the Tao Te Ching was something that really, does everyone know what that is, Tao Te Ching? It's the foundational text of Taoism, which is an Eastern uh, Chinese uh, philosophy. To, to some, it's a religion. Um, and I remember being really moved by that and really changed by it. And ever since that, that was in my freshman year. My, my first semester of my freshman year, I learned that. And it had a big effect on me. And after that, I actually went through a lot of crazy things in college, and I had a near-death experience at one point. I had 
a lot of, uh, it's a whole other, that's a whole talk. So that, that'll be for another talk. Um, but yeah, long story short, basically, I was, a, I guess the word is like a spiritual seeker. And what was interesting was that no matter how much I found other people who were spiritual seekers, I never felt like truly at home with them. I never felt like I really belonged. I felt grateful that there were other people I could talk to about spirituality, but um, I just couldn't find my place. Uh, then I went to the Chabad of uh, ASU. You guys know? Yeah, yeah I love Awesome. Shmuel? Yeah. Shmuel. Uh, Mendy? Yeah, yeah, Mendy. Yeah. Years ago. yeah, is he not here anymore? Or is he? No, he still is. Still is, wow. I know he's fairly new. So. Wow. Oh, I'm, I'm home. I love this. Okay, very cool. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, so I started going to this Chabad. It was actually my last year here. And I remember I got into a huge debate my first night with Shmuel because I'd been uh, really, uh, uh, I'd always been hesitant to go to this Chabad. And um, I started debating him about, you know, the age of the universe and evolution and this and that. And I remember not being... <laughs> I didn't agree with any of his answers, but I was impressed with how articulate he was and how thoughtful he was. And the more that I went, the more I started to realize that, the, number one, that a lot of the beliefs I had held from Taoism and from other places, uh, I heard from Shmuel. It was kind of crazy. And then number two, what I realized was that the people around me seemed to also be, it was the first time that I started to actually find spiritual seekers in which I actually not only shared an affinity for, but shared beliefs with. And it was like seemingly out of nowhere. There, were, there was, I had come up with these beliefs I thought on my own and through studying Eastern religion, all of a sudden I'm finding people who believe in the same things except they use Jewish terminology. Eventually I became, I became Orthodox, long story short. And what's interesting is that eventually that empowered me. I ended up living in an Orthodox community which empowered me then to become a writer. It's a big part of why I became a writer. The blog, Pop Chassa, that was mentioned, I started that when I was studying um, to be, to learn how to be Orthodox in Israel. That's where it started. Um, so it kind of was, all my writing has always come from that place. Okay, so that's one example. Second example. Um, uh, one of the other things in my bio mentioned was uh, building a creative community called Hivria. So that started because I had just moved to a Jewish community in New York. And I was really, uh, I was very lonely in the sense that I felt, you know, again, I felt very lonely. The reason for that wasn't because of spirituality. It was because I felt connected with all these spiritual people, but there was this side of me, this writer side of, my, of me, that couldn't, that didn't know so many other creatives. Um, but then I got, to, I started to like kind of slowly get to know, because thank God Brooklyn's very active Jewish and creative place. I started to get to know some people, and soon we started like creating writing groups, and soon we started spending more time together, and soon we built, you know, uh, a group of friends that started to hang out together more, and then eventually that actually led to us starting a website together that was called Hevria. And, or is called Hevria, and then that actually led to another stage in our development, which was to create um, an actual creative Jewish community, like one that, you know, we have regular get-togethers, we have, we, we do events once, so we kind of like what's happening here, except we do it for creative, specifically for creativity. And all of a sudden, I had built a place where I could feel at home, and others could feel at home, and also, ultimately, we hope that will be making the Jewish world itself more creative. 
One last uh, example. When Trump was elected, um, I uh, felt extremely alone. Um, I was anti-Trump like f way early in the primaries. I was really scared of him and felt like he was authoritarian. Um, I felt that a lot of the historical uh, things I had learned about Jewish history and about history in general um, signaled that this was a person who took advantage of, of um, issues in a, in, a, in a society and, and then worsened them and, took and, and then uh, used them to hurt others and then create a society in which um, his authority is, is law, essentially. Um, I was really scared of that. And what, was, what scared me and disturbed me even more was that in the Jewish community I lived in, uh, I basically felt like I was the only one who had that opinion. Not only that, but as a writer who had built an audience of largely Orthodox Jews and, and, and right-wing Jews and stuff because I was pro-Israel, um, the more that I spoke up about it, the more alone I felt because people started kind of treating me like a traitor a little bit. And it was really painful. And for a long time, for about a year, I felt basically completely alone in this respect. Um, then this person, Victoria, that, that AJ mentioned, reached out to me. And she told me, you know, we have this group. For, uh, this Facebook group for Orthodox Jews who feel alone <laughs> uh, during the time of Trump. It's called Tor Trump's Hate. And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds exactly like what I need. And I joined this group and it changed my life. It, it, which is crazy to think that a Facebook group could change someone's life. But it really did. Number one, it gave me a place to feel at home. To feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not alone. There are other Jews like this or other Orthodox Jews like this. And it really amazed me. And what was even more amazing was that about a year after that, we had grown from a few hundred people to 2,000 people. And that's kind of amazing if you think about like the size of Orthodox Jew Jewry. And think about it. So 2,000 people is actually like a sizable amount of people. Um, and what was even more amazing from that was that we built from that we, we got to the point where we weren't just venting and talking about how alone we felt. We actually decided, okay, we're 2,000 people now. Now we have, like, we have the ability to change people's minds. We have the ability to get together and to do things to affect people. And when we did that, and when we realized that, we decided to go public, and we went to this March for Racial Justice in New York, and we made like a big splash. It was really amazing. And from there, we've been able to do a lot of other things. Like, uh, we recently protested the Orthodox Union. Do you guys know about? Um, how Jeff Sessions was recently honored at a Jewish ceremony. Do you know about anything about this? So he, he was honored with a plaque that said, uh, Tzedek, 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 which means justice, justice, you shall pursue. Um, and this was like about a day after children were being separated from their parents. And so we got together and decided, you know, uh, we're going, actually it wasn't my idea, but I, I thought the idea was incredible, which was to organize uh, a protest where we would pray in front of their offices once a week to kind of protest this decision, among others. <clears throat> so the point being that a year ago, if you had told me, or a year and a half ago, if you had told me that this was something, that I would be standing with a group of Orthodox Jews protesting an Orthodox organization for honoring um, a tr the Trump administration, I would not have believed, I honestly would not have believed it, because I had, at that time, I was writing articles about how alone Orthodox Jews felt, and all of a sudden we had a home. Um, okay, so that's kind of the setting. And I think maybe you guys might have heard some themes there. 
Um, the hope is to kind of see the patterns that have emerged there. Um, I think number one, what we could learn from these things is what community even is. And then number two, again, how we get to change from there. Does, does, anyone, does anyone see, um, and you don't have to answer, but if you, if you did happen to notice what the first step in each one of these stories was. Um, it's good that you brought her, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly, a place of loneliness, right? I mean, it's interesting to think of community starting from a place of loneliness, but it actually kind of makes sense, right? Like, if we're talking about communities that start from the ground up, communities that start from nothing, um, you know, if you think about it, if you're lonely, loneliness is actually, you know, it's been tied to, um, they did a study where um, nuns, who, there was this group of nuns who, uh, it was like incredible community of, of, of nuns, and they supported each other, it was a very like supportive environment, but they all smoked cigarettes, <laughs> uh, like a pack of cigarettes a day. And they did a study on these women, and, and there are other studies that corroborate this, but basically these women live just as long as someone who didn't smoke cigarettes. Point, and, and they have done studies kind of the opposite way, people who are lonely, uh, develop all like the symptoms of um, of heart disease, etc., much quicker than people who don't feel lonely. So the point is that loneliness is incredibly powerful, and the flip side of that is finding a way to not be alone is even more powerful. So this is kind of how communities start, really. It starts from someone or some ones feeling alone and feeling a need to connect. It's interesting. I just read a study in NPR that said. You would think who's the most who feels the most alone? Uh, you would think the elderly, right? Those who are widows or widowers or they live in isolation, they're homebound. It said the t American twenties and thirties mm. feel that much more deeply than any other age population. Isolated, alone, you know, lonely, disconnected. Yeah, I mean it's interesting if you think about it, on a structural level, we're more and more isolated, right? Like we we're connected, you know, very weakly to everyone, um, but we're not really connecting, right? And so, the, it's actually a service to provide a home to other people. You know, what Rabbi Shmuley is doing right now, literally having you in his home, is such a service. Because even if it's, uh, even if it's your first time or whatever, it's something where you are able to come into a place, and because of some commonality, um, whether it's the Jewish side or the social justice slash Jewish side or whatever, um, there's something incredibly meaningful to this very space, this very act that we're doing. Um, for one night, instead of watching Netflix like I, I often like to do, uh, we're, I'm get, we're getting to spend time together and talk about meaningful things, which is even an even deeper level of connection. You know, it's interesting because it actually reminds me of Abraham, um, or Abraham. Do you guys know the story, like the early story of Abraham, how he, how he, uh, kind of what he was like when he was young, and how he arrived? What's that? In the shop. In the shop, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. You want to, do you yeah. want to share? No, you don't want to share. <laughs> <laughs> it was good, it was good, it was good. Um. <laughs> he really yeah, exactly. But but what's interesting is that he had a he he deep he actually at first didn't have a connection to God. He was he had to like intellectually get there, and he had to do it in a very lonely way because he everyone around him was um, you know was was idol were idol worshippers and they didn't believe in this idea that there could be a one God above uh, anything, and and so he kind of had to go by himself and think alone, 
and meditate on it. And that's what led to that connection. And then what's interesting is that after that, he was so, uh, so alone and so angry about his loneliness, uh, and maybe also, obviously, he was also an incredibly holy person, but on the, he was, the story is, is fascinating. Whether you believe it or not, it actually models perfectly, again, the creation of a community. He was so angry that he went into his, father, his own father's shop and destroyed, uh, and destroyed all the, or almost all the idols there. And then um, when his father came home, he said, uh, he said, how could you do this? And he said, it was the idol. Right, like the point he left, like one idol there, and he said it was him. You know, kind of to prove the point that if you really actually believe in this, then you'll believe that this uh, stone statue was the one who did this. Point being, it's like an, it's a it's a fascinating origin story, as we say. Right, uh, it's um, it started from loneliness, and and then obviously we know what, what or most of us can assume what happened from there. All right. So, it starts from loneliness. Does anyone remember the second stage? I'm looking at you just because you answered well before. <laughs> Searching for others like yourself? Ah, uh, perfect. Yes, exactly. Searching for others like yourself. Exactly. And I think searching for others who share maybe that loneliness or who have found a way to remedy that loneliness, I think, um, is probably a good way of putting it. Um, the first, the first thing we need to do when we feel lonely is not just to wallow in our loneliness. Unfortunately, we have been to a certain extent trained to think that when someone's lonely, it's a static reality. But the truth is, we are constantly dynamic people in a constantly dynamic society, which means that we always have the opportunity to connect with others. There's always opportunities for that, right? Um, and I'll go more into how that works later. But the point is that when we start to connect with others, that's when the shift starts to change from, I'm a person with a particular way of looking at the world, to I'm a person who's starting to build connections with other people who also share that view. Um, and this is really important if we're talking about especially ideology. If you feel alone because of your ideology, um, that's something that can be incredibly painful as well because, because if you feel like the whole world, imagine like how Abraham felt when the whole world was, an, was idol worshippers, it must have been just incredibly lonely. It must have been beyond lonely because, he, he, you know, I, I think very often um, some people in those situations tend to think like, oh, maybe I'm the crazy one. And so you kind of need other people to at the very least tell you you're not crazy. Um, that, and that to me was like, for example, what Tor Trump's hate did for me. I was like, oh, okay, like there are other people that feel exactly like me. I'm not crazy for thinking like this. You know, it's funny because we tend to think so much, when we think of like famous people and people that change the world, we tend to think of them as lone wolves that like masterfully changed everything. But like for example, I'm a, a huge fan of, of art and artists and, and how art changes the world. And if you think about the artists that change the world, we tend to think of one name, right? We think of Monet, right? Or uh, or uh, Keats, uh, John Keats, or Bob Dylan, right? But what's interesting is that with each one of those names, there's actually an entire community revolving around them. Without the Impressionists, who were all ostracized because of their interpretation of art, Monet would never have had the support he needed or the belief in himself that he needed in order to create the water lilies that now would sell for however much money that we can't even imagine, right? Um, without the romantics to help give Keats a framework for how to think 
about what it means to be a romantic, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't know the name John Keats, right? And without the incredible creativity of an entire, not just a community, but a neighborhood in New York, uh, like a huge neighborhood in New York uh, called Greenwich Village that was essentially devoted to creativity and to, to, to not just creativity, but creativity that was focused on changing America, we wouldn't have had Bob Dylan and actually a lot of other artists that we, we know of. Um, and it's funny because Bob Dylan in particular we tend to think of as just this lone genius, but really without those people he would, we would not know the name probably. Okay, so we've gotten through two stages. There's one, one stage after that. Does anyone? And I kind of hinted at it with the example of the artists, but. Building the community, yeah, that's actually, I would say that's like 2B, but yeah, exactly, building the community. Um, but let's, once you've built the community, I guess, would be my, my, uh, the last step I would be asking about. The action, like writing the novels, doing the art, exactly. getting out there, getting your work out there. Yes, exactly, it's a per exactly. Um, so just, for example, like how Torchrum's Hate we got from the point of, I feel like I'm like marketing it. I'm just uh, trying to give an example because I keep saying the name over and over again. Uh, because with Torch, I'm saying what we did was uh, we went from a place where first we needed that feeling of safety, right? We needed that feeling of comfort and, and not feeling alone, right? And then we suddenly we got to a place where almost all of us almost at once were like, wait a second, like we have, we're not like alone anymore. We're not powerless anymore. We actually have incredible power. Our numbers and our passion and our unity have this power to change things. And so essentially, we, we went from something, we literally were a secret group because we didn't want, we were very afraid of, uh, some people literally didn't want their community uh, to know that they were anti-Trump because they were afraid of being harassed or worse. Um, and still true, but we eventually we got to the point at least where most of us weren't afraid to talk publicly about this group and what we were doing. Enough so that now we're, you know, really like a part of the social justice movement in New York, which is really exciting. So besides uh, Torch, I'm saying I'll give you other examples. Uh, the atheist movement. The atheist movement started off as a group of incredibly lonely people. If you think about America a few decades ago, um, to be atheist was not the norm at all. It wasn't even close to something worth discussing. Most, and I think people still, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the majority of America w still says they wouldn't vote for an atheist for president. You know, um, and what's fascinating is uh, what happened was all these atheists started connecting thanks to the internet, um, thanks to essentially whatever existed before Facebook groups, they, start, they connected almost instantly. Because imagine you're some guy living in the South and the first question they ask you when you, meet, when you come into town or move into town is, what church do you go to? And you know that if you come out as an atheist, you know, you're going to be ostracized. So imagine you're that guy, and all of a sudden you're searching online for atheist groups, and you have this huge group of people that want to talk to you. But then what's interesting is they went from there to building like literal churches, like to building communities, having conferences, to being actually one of the most influential and powerful voices in, in, in the American religious landscape. It's really, it's really fascinating. It's actually really, uh, a really important lesson. It's actually something that um, I think a lot of communities would do well to model. Um, because again, it started from loneliness, came to comfort, and then built into, we want to actually change the world with what we have. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, again, 
that's uh, what Avraham did, right? After he smashed the idols and left and whatever, he, his job was literally to go around and to gather other people that believed in this idea that there might be one God, either to convince them or to find people that already were open to the idea. And he was just gathering them. That's all he did. He was just trying to bring them together. And then eventually, uh, obviously, that led to uh, quite a big change in the world. Would you say another good community that's evolved in the last couple of years is the LGBTQ community as well? Oh my gosh, because yeah. Because at one point, if you were any of that at all, yeah. you would be pretty much killed. But yeah. in today's world, it's kind of been, they've kind of come together as their own, and they're kind of more respected now than yeah I mean I think that's an incredible example I think um, I think most oppressed communities in America or anywhere are are um, are in some way shape or form modeling this at different stages you know um, and I think again it's a perfect example of how at first you know so much of that was like building this infrastructure in which they could just feel at home and feel feel confident in who they were and not feel like evil people for for um, for simply being who they were, right? Um, and the gay pride parade is interesting. It's kind of a combination of both change and and simply getting together and celebrating, right? So I think that's like a perfect example. It's funny because I'm trying to give different examples because I think it's important that we see both in the positive light and the, the uh, negative light if we look at it. Like, for example, uh, um, just to take it into a dark direction as well, neo-Nazis also represent this because it used to be very taboo to be an alt-right, right, however you want to put it. It used to be very, very uh, taboo. It still is to a certain extent, but it's much less taboo, right, than it used to be. Um, and that happened because of the same dynamics. Sadly, it happened because of the same dynamics that are described there where people were feeling alone. They felt like something is taboo, and they felt like, oh, now there's a place I can talk about it. And they got together, and now they said, hey, let's meet in Charlottesville, and et cetera. <laughs> And it's actually incredible if you think about that because it's, it's scary. But I also think it's important that we acknowledge the power of that because we see how much of it affects the other communities um, where they influenced an election. Like, they influenced an election so much to the point where they actually helped get the guy elected. Um, it's, it's really kind of incredible. And I think we tend to look at that as a very scary thing, but I actually think it's really important that we, as the change makers, right? Isn't this is a group of young change makers? That's what I was asking for. Uh, like, change and balance. It's like one power versus the other. Like no one, neither one can ever be equal. They always one or the other. That's actually, yeah, oh wow, that's a whole discussion too. Right, who's on the top, who's this? I think that's actually a great, a great question. I think, I think for us, for the, at least for the focus of this is like, how can we harness that for ourselves at the very least, right? Like, how can we harness that so that the people we care about, the communities we care about, the potential communities we care about can be empowered? Um, if there are any neo-Nazis in this room, then maybe you shouldn't be listening. But otherwise... Uh, or the live stream. Or the live stream, right. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's quite likely one-third of the listeners are... Right, exactly. <laughs> Hello, neo-Nazis, yeah. <laughs> could be, could be. Um... All right, I want to now examine it a little bit. Do, are there any more questions again before I go on? No, because we, we essentially summed up the steps. We, we, start, we summed that up, but I think it's also important to understand how we can even, if we're going to be a, a cha young change makers, et cetera, um, 
young professional change maker. I, I love all the buzzwords. I just love throwing them around. It's fun. Um, but basically, if we're going to do this, we're going to try to make change with our communities. I think it's really important that you understand the dynamics of how that actually happens. Like we understand, okay, we understand the steps, but what's actually involved on a granular level? Um, so first of all, I think one thing that we miss out on a lot, we live in a world that glorifies the big. We love big things. And it's funny because it used to be even more true in the 90s and stuff. Like every, we were all you know, obsessed with action movies, obsessed with celebrities. Like you know, now actually celebrity culture has kind of declined and it's partly because of the, the cultural dynamics and also because of technology we're starting to understand, oh, there's much more of a fragmentation happening. But still, we're still kind of obsessed with big numbers. Right? Um, it's hard, you know, when you look at social media, it's hard not to value someone based on how many followers they have. Um, it's hard not to value an article that we read based on what number of shares is publicized there. It's like, it's almost like we're programmed, like, when, especially when we're talking about uh, the technology we use. We think, when I go on my Facebook app and I have one notification, Oh my gosh, like there's some part of ourselves that feel the dopamine is not uh, filled up in the right way. And when we see nine plus notifications, we get very, there's something in us that gets excited by that. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sure I'm the only one who experiences this, but like. Uh, <laughs> Since the day Facebook came out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's what, it's what it is. We have a fascination with that. And so um, I think it's really important if we're talking about. Um, it's, it's, it's also fascinating how some of the people with the biggest followings have like the least impact. They, have, they don't have much to say, or, they, or even when they do say something, it's not that effective. Um, you know? And so we also have this fascination with, uh, with not just big numbers, but big power. Like that we think that the, like the best way to make change, actually, um, Rabbi Shmuley and I, before we're talking about this, uh, uh, which is like, how do you, we were talking about how do you make change in the Orthodox community, right? And a lot of people kind of assume, all right, my job is to inject myself into the, ortho, the monolith of the Orthodox community, of whatever community I'm a part of, and to, and to make change there, because that's the, big, that's the big kahuna. That's how I make change. I go straight to the top. And I would argue that the stories that we've heard and the stories that we've discussed actually make a very different point, that... If you think about it, the alt-right is incredibly small, and yet somehow they impacted an entire election. If you think about it, um, atheist movement started off incredibly small. If you think about you know, the story of Abraham, it literally started with one person. Um, even Torah Trumps hate this little group of, of uh, ragtag, orthodox, progressive Jews. Somehow we're able to, we're, we're somehow able to get into like the... the the Jewish news, at the very least, in, in ways that, that would be impossible um, maybe two years ago. Um, and so my point is that you don't actually need to be big to make change. And maybe sometimes actually being big can be detrimental. You know, if you think about the way startups now are constantly disrupting these humongous companies, they're able to destroy huge companies. Not to say that this is a good thing, but the point is that small has incredible power. And I would argue that what do we see, what's the commonalities that we see among all these groups is, is a few things I mentioned already. One is like being united and being passionate. Um, and so when you're small, but you're passionate and united, so you can think about it in terms of the LGBT community. You can also think about it in terms of neo-Nazis. 
We're talking about groups that are incredibly motivated to make change and are very united because they know exactly what they want. Um, and that can do so much more because if you think about it, the big numbers of people that we think of, like the, the vast majority of people in America or anywhere, most of them uh, only make, most of them aren't kind of invested in change. It's just not something that they're as excited about. So you have to really be motivated and you have to have a lot of other people motivated with you to be able to do that. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Another aspect of this, I would argue, is that the way we bring people together is different than the big ways we think of, right? A lot of times we think of marketing and advertising and all these things as big, huge endeavors and trying to get as many people to come to your events as possible. I know this as a guy who runs the Jewish organization. These, uh, when you go to funders and stuff, they're obsessed with how many people you get to come. Very few of them ask, how many people have you deeply affected, <coughs> right? Um, and, and so it's interesting because I think that ultimately, if you look at all these examples, every single one of them did not create a movement from uh, putting a billboard in Times Square. They created a movement by slowly and surely uniting people that needed what they provided, which was that home, right? It just, it all started at that home. It all started with people coming together in a house, metaphorical or real, and talking and connecting, and from there, building something. So we can learn something very powerful from all this, which is that if your only goal is to change the world through community, you're probably not going to do it. Actually, the most powerful way you can do it is by providing a service to others, by being a home for them, and then empowering them to do the very thing that you yourself also want to do. Now, whether you're the leader of a group or a part of a group, the dynamic is the same and your role is the same. Essentially, it means you're trying to create other leaders with you. You're not the only leader. You're not the top person. You're all in this together. And that's really how a group becomes united and passionate. Because rather than thinking, I'm doing this because the boss is telling me to do it, they're thinking, I'm doing this because we are all together motivated by the same cause. That's incredibly, incredibly powerful. And it's something that we underestimate constantly because, again, we're obsessed with quantity and very, very, um, uh, it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around the uh, intangible, qualitative aspect of, of, of reality in general and, and especially inter, inter-human uh, connection. Any questions before I move on? Okay. Have you ever um, yeah. come across an example of a community where they have, there's, there are people with a similar vision, but it's not really creating change. Yeah. And it's just like a sounding box, uh, you know, a, a center for people to like voice their opinion and nothing really happens. Or is that something still happening? And would you view that as an impact in itself? Right. It's interesting because, yeah, I actually think, so number one, I would agree that there's a value in and of itself there. Because there are a million organizations that just provide a home, right? Not every... Not every community is about changing the world, right? I mean, a lot of them, and, and, and this is a completely valid and valuable thing, which is, you know, there's some people that just need a place to call home. And 
And so yes, I would agree that number one, there's something 100% valuable about that, and there are many, probably many more of those that exist than the ones who are trying to make change. Um, what I would argue is, is simply that, uh, and it's also true that ones that do want to make change often end up going in that circle, right? Because it's much safer to not actually put yourself out there as a group. Just like as a person, it's much harder to, you know. Um, but so my, I guess uh, it's a great question because I think I am describing a dynamic, but it, I don't mean to make it sound descriptive. It's more prescriptive. It's like, this is how we do it. But it's not, there's no guarantee we're going to do it. It's only going, it, it, there is a guarantee if we really commit to it. But there isn't a guarantee if we, um, you know, it's, again, we, you know that bu the buzzword echo chambers, right? We, we very often love to feel like we're making a change by talking to other people we agree with. Um, and that's, that's the danger of community, I would say, the danger. And, um, yeah, I see what you're saying. You're creating like a mindset for an alternative. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, Right, right, exactly. I think we have to constantly be conscious of it. Yeah, this is not something that happens easily. I don't think Abraham just, you know, snapped his fingers and created a religion. I think, uh, um, I think it takes work. You know, in case you're interested in starting a religion. Um, <laughs> any other uh, questions? Yeah. Would you say a community that? doesn't take action but has very aggressive wording is more dangerous or a community that doesn't have very aggressive wording but takes action is more dangerous. More dangerous? Violence in, in, a, violence in the words versus violence in their actions, which do you think can cause more damage? You know, I think, I think that the quote-unquote obvious answer would be to say uh, action because ultimately action you know, that speech is something that leads to action, but, but I would argue that, especially in the world we live in today, um, words, have, words are action. And so I don't know if we can draw the line that easily. Um, and I think it probably depends on the group, and it depends on their size, and it depends on their audience. Um, but yeah, we know a lot of people, uh, you know, I use a, a certain uh, social media platform called Twitter. If you guys ever heard of it, yeah, you heard of it, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. So um, it's that's a place where a bunch of people use language in incredibly violent ways that actually leads to violence. Um, so I don't know. Are the people in Charlottesville more dangerous than the masses on Twitter that incite violence? I'm actually not sure about that. I think it's a very good question, um, especially since we now live in a world where language uh, can be What's the word? Exponentially uh, passed on. So, yeah. Well, hope that answers your question. I think it's important, um, I, and I'm just going to kind of reemphasize something I said earlier, that we embrace the value of fringeness. I guess um, we we have a, a kind of a distorted view of history, where the people who we tend to think of as the change makers, we kind of look back on and imagine they led, you know, we look at Martin Luther King and we see the masses of people he marched with and we think of him as this mainstream figure. But the truth was, do you know that when Martin Luther King died, 66% of America disapproved of him? I mean, this was not a mainstream figure. He only became mainstream when people, uh, felt comfortable enough to, you know, to speak about him in a way that, that 
that was comforting as opposed to scary. Because at the time, it was scary for people to have to deal with the reality that there was a black man who was about to upend their society. That's not an easy thing for anyone to grapple with. Um, it's just as true, you know, you know, if you think about the story of Socrates and Plato and, and these philosophers, they were all like, like crazy fringe figures. They were actually seen as crazy. Uh, just as much as the prophets were seen by, by Jews. They were seen, these are now people that are consecrated with the Torah that was, uh, according to at least Orthodox belief, was written by God. They're actually the, these, these outcasts who were, who were told by the leaders of the Jewish people, they were told that they were, uh, that they, they, they were told that they were literally kicked out of, of certain Jewish institutions there. And, because they were speaking up so much, because they were such troublemakers. Like, these people, again and again and again, were seeing examples of people that we now, and, and what's even funnier about, I don't know, funny, but even more ironic about this, is that the people in power now, and the people, the people who are invested in, in keeping a structure um, that doesn't get disrupted, very often tend to use those figures um, in a way that caricaturizes, the, caricaturizes them as mainstream when in reality, almost all of them were on the fringe. So I think it's really important that we kind of, we don't need to all, I'm not telling you all to like go off and go on the fringes. What I'm saying is that there's a power to the small and the passionate, and especially when it comes to community. Um, there's actually been a study that was done where they said that, how do, how do ideas like end, end up make, entering the mainstream, right? Because right now we're dealing with a world where a lot of things we used to think of as fringe, like, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. Right now, it's we're, we're kind of it's maybe becoming normalized, but it's a little bit crazy to think about some of the things that are now considered normal. Um, that literally a year or two ago we never would have accepted, um, never, never, never. I mean, and what happened there? So they actually there was a study that was done. Um, I don't remember who the authors were, but they essentially figured out the inflection point of when a population takes a fringe idea and makes it mainstream. So if you, does anyone, can anyone guess what they think the number might be? Number of what? The percentage of people in a population that an idea needs to spread to before it becomes mainstream. Like what's that inflection point? 78%. 78%? Okay. Any other guesses? Anyone else? All right, 10%. 10%. Yeah. I mean, it's, first of all, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think about that. that there's, I'll, I'll read a quote from the study. Uh, when the number of committed opinion holders is below 10%, there's no visible pro progress in the spread of ideas. But once that number grows above 10%, the idea spreads like a flame. Um, really powerful and really interesting if you think about how much change has happened in America in the last year, but also in the last 50 years. You know, there's not only negative examples, incredibly positive examples. You know, for so long it was not mainstream to accept the idea that um, gays should be allowed to marry. And yet, it was, I think, I believe that it was um, Obama throwing his support behind it that like almost instantly shifted public opinion, um, because obviously a leader of that stature can change that 10% very quickly. 
Um, and there are obviously so many other examples of this. But the point being that uh, we don't need a plurality of people in order to change the majority opinion. What we need is a group of committed people who are focused together on getting to that 10%. This is part of why, for example, like, you know, we tend to, th we, we hear like these caricatures of college campuses where certain ideas are taboo and these sort of things, and some people see it as negative, some people see it as positive, as, you know, the trigger warnings, safe spaces, these sorts of things. Um, it's actually something that's not really actually mainstream, and yet it is because it's happening, all, like college, colleges are actually all changing their policies like everywhere you look, which is part of why people assume it's a mainstream thing. But the truth is, they did a poll in a lot of these colleges, and about 88% of the students didn't, uh, you know, weren't as passionate about this. Remember, that was the number for one college, where they actually did change the policy. It's actually kind of fascinating if you think about that number, right? Because that means that 12% were passionate about it. That was enough to change policy there. And it could be scary. It can also be incredibly inspiring. It depends how you look at it. It depends what the morality is of the people doing these things. Um, and I think it's one more thing that has been spoken about but hasn't been really focused on um, is the power of the internet. Right? We actually live in a world now where that 10% is not as unattainable as we might think. Like You don't necessarily have to um, get a huge group of people to march with you to reach that 10%. Right? You can literally just start an online community and somehow get there. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about, but it is possible. Um, it's probably not the only way to do it, but it is. It's the, the power of the internet is, is really interesting because um, as technology has evolved, it's allowed us to create community in much more unique ways than we used to. If you think about it, um, the, the examples that I gave of internet communities from atheists to the alt-right, to uh, LGBT, to, um, to uh, Torah Trump's hate, to Hevria, all these examples all started on the internet. But there's also one other uh, thing that they all hold in common. It's that they share an ideology. Not just that they share, they don't just share, they're not just sharing um, the fact that they're all Jewish, they share a certain kind of Judaism. It's not just that they share um, that they're right-wing. It's that they share that they have a very specific form of right-wing belief. And all of these things are, are basically showing how in the past, if you think about it, if you go way back, right, actually not even that far back, most of our communities were built off of things that we didn't have control over. Things like, for example, geography. The, if we didn't have cars, and we, it, the, the, it made it much harder for us to travel to other, to other towns. And so a community was literally a community that was built off of where we all happened to live together. And if we were Jews, we happened to be forced together, uh, which helped us build a community that was also based off of belief. But for the most part, people created communities based off of where they lived. And as time went on and the printing press was created and, and radio uh, evolved, all these things allowed for more and more communities that were built off of ideology. And for me as an Orthodox Jew, it's actually incredibly inspiring because that means we're going from a very physical way of building community to a very spiritual one. We're going from a, from a tangible to an intangible uh, community-based uh, uh, model. Um, 
And so it's, it, it might help explain also why we're becoming more polarized. Because instead of us thinking, okay, I live with Republicans and Democrats, um, I have to get along with them, someone who even lives in a place where everything is red and they're, they're blue can just find other people online in a second and maybe even move, if they feel like it, somewhere else. I mean, this is something that's becoming very common. And we're actually seeing maps of the way people have followed this trend because the truth is more and more people are actually doing that. Um, if you look at suburbs, more and more of them are becoming places where people structure where they live based off of how red or blue that district is. It's just becoming, it's becoming more and more of a reality. We're, we're building worlds in which, for better or for worse, our communities are built off of ideology. Now, this means a lot if you are invested in a community that its goal is to change the world. Right? If, it's, if, a, if a community's goal is to change the world, you have never lived in a better time. Because the internet creates a world in which number one community is number one. Social media is the most powerful, one of the most powerful forms of technology on the internet because we are all social beings, but also because we all want to connect with each other on more than just more than just physical reasons. We desperately want to connect with people based on ideology, especially if we feel lonely, and we desperately want to then take that ideology and spread it to other people or at least bring other people who agree with us together. I mean, that's kind of a lot of the dynamics that are happening with the internet. And so we can't underestimate that power. That power is unbelievable. I mean, really it could be argued, and I actually, I don't even know if, it's a, if anyone can really dispute the, the, the truth that Trump became president because of the internet. Without his voice and without other people coming together, without them being able to push that 10% much quicker than ever could have happened before, it wouldn't have happened. You know? And whether you think it's a positive or a negative thing, the truth is it happened, and that's a big part of why. In this new landscape, what do you think, what's your personal feeling on um, physical interaction, like meetups like this versus yeah. online? Um, it's actually a great, it's, I love that question. Because um, I think very often we tend to think that like, my, my, the way I'm speaking, I think, can come off as saying, well, it's just, it's enough. All we need is just, uh, is just to uh, connect online. Um, so now I'll just, just to, like, as a, to, to answer your question, I think that I'm talking a lot about change and change and change and change, and, but I actually think both for our health and for change, we need to do more than the Internet. The Internet allows for these weak connections, but ultimately, like we spoke about, if you're only connecting with people based on their ideology through the internet, you are going to feel alone. You're going to feel less alone, but you're going to feel alone. That's why all the examples I gave, if you think about the atheist movement, the alt-right, et cetera, et cetera, every single one of those, anything that especially that changed things, but, but even if they didn't, the, the, they could not have gone into that they, they, they couldn't have even claimed to be at a level of changing the world if they didn't get together in reality, right? Um, and so it's both like on an emotional level we need it um, to really create a home for people. You'll never be able to create a home for someone on the internet. You'll be able to create an access point to a home. 
and the building blocks for a home, but you'll never actually build that home, which is why, again, this, us group, a group of people, a small group of people can be much more powerful than 10,000 people in a Facebook group. Any other questions? Yes. I guess I had a question about gatekeeping. Like, yeah. Who is the ultimate arbiter of who is allowed or not allowed into a community? And how does that affect the perspicacity of that community? Like, how if somebody wants to be in a community and someone says you can't be, they say, why not? There's no, just like, how, who's the arbiter of that? That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Um, I think that it really depends on the community, which is a kind of a cop-out, but I actually think it's true. Um, I'll give you like a few examples to explain what I mean. Um, a lot of internet communities started off with the belief of like pure democracy. Everyone is allowed as long as we share this ideology and we'll come together. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Actually, the alt-right is a perfect example, um, where people were just like, coming together, all these guys who, you know, some guys just like trolling people, and some people were actually white nationalists, and some people were Jewish trolls who also had sympathy to white nationalism, like, like all these weird things that, they, that connected them that were disparate, but the idea was very much based on, like, the libertarian uh, world that, like, Reddit had built and these sorts of things. I'm getting, like, very uh, specific, so if you have any questions about what I'm saying, um, feel free to ask. But the point being that it was based off of this, like, this idea that the internet is a, is like going to build a utopia and all we need to do is just open things up and everything's going to solve itself um, because the biggest problem we've had is gatekeepers um, and so what happened was, what was interesting about this is almost any community there was an article written about it and I'm trying to remember where it was written I'll try to share it with you guys afterwards um, but basically this person described how almost any internet community that builds itself like that eventually splinters because it's impossible to really build, you know, part of what I was talking about was numbers is not, is not enough. In fact, unity is much more important in some ways. So the truth is that um, ultimately what a lot of these groups have figured out is, number one, it's okay to fragment. And number two, once we do fragment, once we figure out who we really are and what we're really trying to fight for, we do need to create our own form of gatekeeping, whatever that happens to be. Um, and I think every community struggles with that. And I think especially now where in theory you don't need gatekeepers, but in reality we all need to kind of create them, we're all figuring it out and balancing it. So it's, very, it's actually fascinating because I'm a part of these two um, online communities and we have very different standards for how we accept people or don't accept them. So, uh, For example, like Hevria, we only do, we do invite-only events for the most part because we Dafka, like, we're extreme gatekeepers. We're, we're you know, authoritarian <laughs> because it's really important that we, we really want people that aren't just, I'm just an artist. We want people that really understand what we're trying to do. So I'm just going to wrap up with you guys real fast. Um, so I think we should just kind of name all the things that I described already. So how can we harness community to make change? First... We have to discover where, because I think it's easy to describe this in generality, but let's say you're not necessarily someone that thinks of themselves as a lonely person. Um, I think that almost all of us have a part of ourselves that feels lonely, a part of ourselves that is kind of dying to connect with others. 
And so I would argue that the best way we can, if you're interested in creating a community or being part of a community that can change the world or can change a part of the world or can change, uh, you know, change you, um, the best way to do that is to find the part of you that feels lonely. It sounds negative, but the truth is, that's really where all the opportunity is. You know, when they, when they talk to startups about, or people that want to get into entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial work and, and create startups, they often say, stop thinking about what you think people want and start thinking about what people actually need. And it sounds boring, but the truth is, that's really what it takes to create something successful in general. Like, you're trying to, to fulfill someone's need. Now, the difference with community, and especially if you're invested in a community, is that you also need to have that need. Or you actually at least have to be invested to a certain extent in the needs of others that you also share. <coughs> so you need to find that place. What is the thing that makes you lonely, and how can you then harness that loneliness, take it, and then um, gather the other lonely people, right? Use your abilities. And again, there are so many tools at our disposal to gather people that it's almost unbelievable. Um, we live in an age that is built for gathering people, especially based on loneliness, especially because so many people are lonely, and especially because the internet allows this to happen um, based off of not just geography or anything, but ideology. So the next step is to gather them. Third step, build a home for them. Make sure that they feel empowered and welcomed and nurtured and taken care of just as you would want. And that's part of why it's really powerful to find that part of loneliness within yourself, because you will know if they're being nurtured, if you're being nurtured. That's, you could again, like I said, you could stop right there. That could be enough for a lot of people, and it is enough for a lot of people. But if you want to then take it further, you want to then, not just, that one, again, the biggest problem with the way a lot of people try to build community is that they think, I'm going to be the leader and everyone's going to follow me. But a true, uh, community built off of changing, uh, changing things and changing others and changing themselves, etc., is a community where they create other leaders. Where it's not just about me and everyone else following me. It's that we all share this loneliness. We all share this need. And we're all in this together. So what that means is that if the only way we can be, as I described before, united and passionate is if we all feel like leaders. If we all feel like it's our job to do this, not just this guy's job. It's not just the bureaucrat's job. And up top, it's my job. I'm invested in this no matter where I exist in this world. And finally, the, the last step is to watch it grow and push it. Push it and push it and push it. Believe in it. Nurture it. Don't give up, even when it seems like you should be giving up. Keep going, because it seems crazy always, and then all of a sudden you hit that 10% place, and wow, you've made a huge difference. That's how we get there. It sounds, uh, I'm making it sound far more easier than it should be, but it's, it's uh, for many people, it's kind of their whole lives. It's what they do. Um, and I think that's what Rabbi Shmuley is trying to do. I think that's what, um, you know, what, what the, again, I really believe this is what this group represents. It's what the people watching on Facebook Live, the, you know, um, the, uh, it's, it's, it's what we're all trying to do together in our own ways, in our own overlapping or non-overlapping uh, ideologies. And together we can do that. So thank you so much, guys. And
this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.